So the story, so Joshua itself, most of the story of Joshua is written in the book of Joshua, the book of Yehoshua, which is the first of the, six, the eight books of Nevi'im of prophets, which are part of the 24 books of our scripture. So in addition to the five books of Moses, the Torah itself, we have another 19 holy books, books of our scripture. We did a class some time ago about the Tanakh, about the books of the 24 holy books of our scripture, where we gave a brief overview of those 19 holy books. Joshua is the first of those 19 books that tells the story of Joshua, and it really picks up right after the end of the Torah right after the death of Moses, and continues the story of Israel right after Moses' death. The book of Joshua was written by Joshua itself, except the very end that speaks of his death. Um, and it speaks of Joshua's story of the conquest of the promised land, which was the main thing that Joshua, Joshua's main achievement. So who was Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yehoshua? So we're told in the Torah that Yehoshua was actually born Hoshea. Moses then changed his name from Hoshea to Yehoshua. Um, we anglicize many of the, the anglicized version of many of the Hebrew words. We change the Ye into a J, um, like Yerushalayim becomes Jerusalem. Um, so Yehoshua becomes Jehoshua. And then following a um, ancient Jerusalemite form of, uh, or accent, where um, they didn't um, pronounce certain letters, the H or the Y letters, um, the H in Yehoshua is dropped, making it Joshua. So um, that's just an anglicized version, but it is in Hebrew, Yehoshua. So Yehoshua, we're told in the Torah, was the son of Nun. He was the grandson, we're told in the book of Chronicles of Elishama, who was who's identified in the Torah as the pr prince or leader of the tribe of Ephraim um, during the period of the desert, while they're in the desert. We know he was an adult already at the time of the Exodus. Um, he was probably about 40 years old at the time of the Exodus. And immediately after the Exodus, Joshua emerges out of nowhere, really. We don't know anything about his early life, but he emerges as Moses' right-hand man. The first time that we come across Joshua is right after they leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea. Um, right afterwards, they're attacked by the nation of Amalek, a nomadic tribe that lived in the Sinai Desert. And so Moshe, Moses sends Yehoshua, Joshua, to lead the battle against Amalek. Later, he's going to be the one to lead the battle into Israel. But Moses appoints Joshua, first time we hear of him, to lead the battle against Amalek. Um, indeed, he does, and he wins the battle against Amalek. Later, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai um, for 40 days, Joshua accompanies him to the foot of the mountain. And when Moses comes down from the mountain after 40 days, while the people in the camp are worshiping the golden calf, Joshua is unaware of what happened in the camp because he is waiting for Moses at the foot of the mountain. He is there when Moses comes down the mountain. After the sin of the golden calf, Moses, in protest of what happened, moves his tent outside of the camp of Israel. Um, he doesn't want to be found among the people. And, um, and Joshua moves alongside, is again found alongside Moses. Later, when Moses sends 12 spies to spy out the promised land, 
one spy per tribe. We learned about it a few weeks ago in the Parsha. He sends Yehoshua, Joshua, to represent his tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph and was considered its own tribe. He, along with, uh, he's one of the two, along with Caleb from the tribe of Yehuda of Judah, who came back insisting that they can capture the land if God so willed. However, the people listened to the other 10 spies who said that the land was too well fortified, people were too strong, they would never be able to capture the land. So while everybody else, the 10 spies died immediately, everybody else who did not want to go into the promised land died, in, died there in the desert um, over the next 40 years. Joshua and Caleb were the only two adults who had left Egypt that survived, um, that survived the, um, the desert and were there at the end, um, at least a, minus perhaps the tribe of Le Levi, they were the only two men who had survived who were still there at the end of the, um, their period in the desert. When Moses asked God um, to find a worthy leader to succeed him in this parsha, God chose Joshua. Joshua is the man to succeed him. He never left Moses' side, both in study of Torah, he was familiar with the Torah, comfortable with the Torah, as well as um, had been with Moses the entire time. And so Moses, at the end of his life, publicly appoints Joshua as his successor, places his hands on him, anointing him as his successor um, after his death. So we find that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, at the end of the book of Devarim, right before Moses' death, he calls Yehoshua before all the people, says, be strong, you will lead the people into the promised land, and, um, you, and God will be with you. And so, um, uh, and God then appears to Moses and Joshua together at the very end of his life, um, signaling that Joshua is going to, Yehoshua is going to be the next leader. The book of Deuteronomy, the Torah itself, ends with the death of Moses. The last few verses speak of the death of Moses, and then a small eulogy speaking about the greatness of Moses. The book of Joshua picks up immediately after the death of Moses and begins with the words, Vayihi acharei mot Moshe eved Hashem. It was after Moses, the servant of God, died that, uh, this, that God appeared to Joshua um, as leader of the people. And God tells him, be strong. Um, I will be with you as I was with Moses. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of the land of, of the people of Canaan. Get up and you, will, um, and you will lead the people into the promised land. So what happened? They mourned for Moses for 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days of, Mo of the mourning for Moses, Joshua announces a three-day preparation. In three days, they are going to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. He, meanwhile, sent two spies over the Jordan River into Jericho, the big city just over the Jordan River, the first city that they were going to attack. The Talmud tells us that these two spies were Caleb, who had been Joshua's partner the first time that Moses sent spies, and um, had been the other one to come back, um, saying that we can, can capture the land, along with Pinchas, the son of 
Elazar, the high priest, grandson of Aaron, um, Aaron had already died at this point, and um, the one whom in this week's parsha, our parsha is named after him, and whom in this week's parsha had killed um, the Shimonite prince who was um, publicly um, cohabiting with a uh, Midianite princess. And so um, Caleb and Pinchas come to the home of a woman, we're told she's a Isha Zona, a prostitute whose name was Rachav. She lived next to the wall of Jericho. Her home was in the wall, so much so that the windows of her home looked out outside of the city. So she had windows of her home were windows in the wall of the city. So um, the, um, they came to her home, and meanwhile the king of Jericho hears that they had come, that spies from Israel had come and sent soldiers to the home of Rachav to find these spies. Now I should mention that Canaan at the time was inhabited by seven Canaanite nations, or seven nations, and Canaan at the time was each city was essentially its own city-state. So there were many 31 cities, each one surrounded by a wall, um, and each one led by its own king, kind of the way um, you can think of the German city-states in the 19th century before, um, uh, before unification or other city-states in Europe. So um, Canaan at the time had lots and lots of city-states. So Jericho was one of these city-states. So the soldiers come to Rachav's house. She opens the door. They say, we heard that there were two men from Israel here. She says, indeed, there were two strangers that came here, and they left right before the gates closed at night. Go chase them. They must be on their way back to um, the Israelite camp over the Jordan River. And so the men run out of the city gates um, to find these, these spies. Meanwhile, Rachav goes back inside, and she, she had saved their lives. And she goes and she hides both men. She brings them up to the roof to hide them. And she tells them how everybody in Jericho is afraid of Israel. Because everyone knows how God had miraculously taken them out of Egypt. And how they had wandered through the desert. And how they had destroyed the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan, Sichon and Og, and captured their land. And they, they know that they are going to succeed in capturing the city of Jericho and the land of Canaan. But she asks the two spies, since I have saved your life, please help me when you capture the city, spare me and my family. And so she helps them escape from the city by lowering a red rope outside of her window. Her window was in the wall. And so outside of her window was outside of the city. So she lowered a red rope and allowed them to climb down the rope. Before they climbed down the rope, they told her, we will, we swear we will save you and your family, but only on one condition. Leave this red rope in your window as a sign so we will be able to identify your house and have your entire family inside your home. If any member of your family is found outside of your home, we do not take any responsibility for them. And if you have many people hiding in your home beyond the members of your family, we also will not keep this um, promise to you. It only is for members of your family. So meanwhile, they leave the city. Um, they flee westward on her advice to the mountains instead of going eastward towards the Jordan because they know that the roads to the Jordan are full of Jericho, um, soldiers from Jericho looking for them. So they flee the other direction towards the mountains where they wait for three days and then come back to Joshua and report to him everything that happened and how the people of Jericho are scared of Israel. 
So Joshua now prepares Israel for a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. This is 40 years they had left Israel, they had left Egypt, sorry, 40 years earlier on the 15th of Nisan. So this is 40 years minus five days from the Exodus. They are ready to enter the promised land. So first Joshua instructs the Kohanim, they take apart the, the Levites take apart the, the um, take apart the temple as they always would. However, he instructs uh, when they're ready to travel. However, he instructs that normally the family of Kahat, the Kahatites, would carry the Ark of the Covenant. This time the Kohanim, descendants of Aaron, grandchildren of Aaron, by now there were many adult grandchildren um, that had been born in the desert and grown up during this period, that the grandchildren of Aaron carry the Ark. And he instructs that the, 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 the Kohanim carrying the Ark should go in front of the people and um, they should walk into the Jordan. And as soon as the Kohanim carrying the ark put their feet in the Jordan River, immediately the river, a little bit further upstream, stopped flowing downstream. And the waters that were flowing down up to this point, just upstream of them, began to climb as a wall. The water started climbing upwards. So instead of moving downstream, as water usually flows down the river, the water essentially stopped creating a very, very high wall that continued to grow. Meanwhile, all the water downstream, the riverbed dried up as the water continued to flow, as the water, uh, as no water was flowing downstream. And the people then crossed the river um, as it was dry with a wall of water right next to them that continued to pile up. As Israel crossed, Joshua commanded 12 men, one from each tribe, to carry a large stone out of the river riverbed to Gilgal, which was just on the other side of the river, where they would camp for the night. He also had people set up 12 stones in the river, in the Jordan itself, 12 large stones, where the Kohanim were standing with the ark as a monument for this great miracle. Then he had the men that carried the stones to Gilgal set up the 12 stones in Gilgal also as a monument, 12 large stones as a monument for to always remember how Israel had crossed the Jordan and the great miracle that had happened. After all the people crossed, then the Kohanim crossed with the ark. And once they came out of the water, the water then came, the wall of water came down and the water began to, the river began to flow normally once again. And now after this great miracle of crossing the Jordan, the people then camped on the other side of the Jordan, they're now on the west side of the Jordan, just east of the city of, the, of Jericho at a place called Gilgal. The 12 stones, as we said, that were taken out of the Jordan were placed as a monument for the great miracle for what had happened. Now at this point, it is just a few days before Passover, the month of Nisan, God told Joshua, to have all the Jewish men circumcised. Now, the people, and we're told now in the book of Joshua that the people had all circumcised before they left Egypt. In other words, while they had been in Egypt, Abraham had been commanded that, the, that his male descendants circumcise. His son, he circumcised his son Isaac when he was born. Isaac had circumcised his sons, Yaakov and Esau, 
Jacob had circumcised his sons and it had continued. But while they were in Egypt, the practice of circumcision was discontinued. And so when they were ready to leave, although the Torah doesn't record it, the book of Joshua tells us that when they were ready to leave, all the people circumcised themselves. The Torah tells us that uncircumcised people were not allowed to eat the Passover sacrifice that they offered in Egypt. However, it doesn't tell us that they all circumcised, but Joshua tells us that before they had left Egypt, they all circumcised, all of Israel. And however, while they are in the desert, everyone that was born in the desert, all of the Israelite men, none of them were circumcised in the desert. God had not instructed them to do so. The Talmud says it was unsafe to circumcise in the desert. Um, and, uh, and so now when they come to the promised land, God tells Joshua to have everybody circumcised. And so all the men circumcised then, all the men that had been born in the desert are circumcised then um, at Gilgal. Three days later, on the 14th of the month of um, Nisan, God commands them to offer the Passover sacrifice um, in the promised land. They had set up the Mishkan, the temple, right there in Gilgal, and all of Israel offers the Passover sacrifice. They had offered the Passover sacrifice in, in Egypt without a temple, without an altar, just everyone did it in their own home, um, made the Passover sacrifice and burned it and, cooked, and, and roasted it. Um, they had offered the Passover sacrifice in the temple the first year after they left Egypt. They had not offered a Passover sacrifice because God did not tell them to for the next 39 years. And now they offer the Passover sacrifice for the first time um, when they come into the promised land in the Mishkan. And they will continue to do so as long as the temple is standing um, all the way through the destruction of the temple. Um, then on the 16th day of the month of Nisan, um, the second day of Passover, they offer up the Omer offering, the barley offering that is offered on the second day of Passover, and then they harvest um, grain of the land of where they are, and they are able to now eat already from the produce of the land. At this point, the manna stopped. They no longer were eating manna that they had been eating, eating for 40 years. So now the book of Joshua tells us that um, they were ready to attack Jericho. God tells Moses that for the battle of Jericho, all the men of war should march around the city, led by the ark, the Kohanim carrying the ark, for six days. Seven Kohanim should march in front, um, blowing each of them, blowing shofars. And so they did this for six days. And on the seventh day, God tells them that they should march around Jericho seven times. And after marching around Jericho seven times, the walls will collapse. So indeed, they march around Jericho with the Kohanim blowing shofars seven times. And then when they're finished marching around seven times, Joshua announced that the city will be cherem or forbidden. Everything in the city will be donated to the temple and nobody is allowed to take anything from the city. He also announces that nobody should touch Rachav and her family who had saved those two spies. He then tells the Kohanim, and I should mention the marching around once for six days and then seven times on the seventh day is something that we reenact every year on Sukkot with our Lulav and Etrog. We march around the bima in the um, synagogue every day of Sukkot um, for seven days, and then uh, for six days, and then on the seventh day we march Hoshana Rabbah. We march around the bima seven times with our lulav, uh, reenacting the fall of Jericho. 
So um, he then tells the Kohanim, Joshua then tells the Kohanim to blow the um, shofars and the walls collapse, collapse the ground. The people enter the city, they easily capture the city and they destroy the city. The two spies go on Joshua's instructions to the home of Rachav. They save her and her family. What happened to Rachav? The book of Joshua doesn't tell us what happened to her and her family. However, our sages say that Rachav herself converted to Judaism. Uh, Rachav did convert to Judaism. Um, Joshua then tells the, uh, um, the, the, Joshua tells the people to take all the gold and silver and valuables, everything is donated to the temple, and the rest of Jericho is burned to the ground and destroyed. Joshua then issues a curse that anybody who rebuilds the city of Jericho, when they begin, nobody should ever rebuild it. The person who rebuilds the city of Jericho, when they rebuild, begin rebuilding it, their oldest child will die, and all their children will continue to die until when they finish rebuilding the city, their youngest child will die. Indeed, much later in the book of Kings, somebody does attempt to build Jericho, and indeed, as, Jer as Joshua had said, all of his children die. So, uh, they've now captured their first city. Um, where is, in, where is uh, Jericho now? Is there anything there now? Yes, Jericho was rebuilt. Um, it was around during the Second Temple period as a city. Um, it is a city today. It is um, a um, Arab city. Jews have, have not lived there, at least since 1948. Um, for whatever reason, Jews did not live there um, even after 1967. Um, the town of Jericho had Jews over the years, but not recently. Um, it is part of now what's called the Palestinian Authority. In other words, it's an Arab town controlled by the, by the Palestinians. Um, somewhat small town. And um, actually in Jericho um, stands the oldest standing synagogue in the world. Um, called the Shalom Yisrael Synagogue. Um, it's oh, well over 2,000 years old. And it's the only full standing synagogue from that long ago. Um, unfortunately, while in the Oslo Accords, um, Israel was given sovereignty over that synagogue. Unfortunately, um, Jews have not had access to that synagogue um, for the last 20 years or so. But Jericho is still there uh, in Israel today. It's been in the news a lot um, because Israel's talking now about its policy, changing its policy for the Jordan Valley where Jericho sits. So at this point, At this point, Joshua then prepares to capture the next town, the town of Ai. He sends spies to check out the town of Ai. They come back and they say it's a small town, maybe 2,000, 3,000 men, fighters. You don't need all of Israel, just send a small force to capture it. So Joshua sends a 3,000 men force to capture the city, and they lose the battle and flee the people of Ai and many people are, many of the invading force are killed. The people are devastated. This is their second battle in Israel, and they have already lost a battle. So Joshua turned to God and asked God, Why, what have you done? Why have we suffered such a great defeat? You promised to help us in the battle for the land of Canaan. Why have we suffered such a humiliating defeat? So God responds to Joshua that Israel has sinned. 
and transgress the covenant. And by taking from the cherem, taking from the forbidden um, spoils of Jericho. And because of that, God, and because of that, God has punished Israel. They must remove the stolen booty from their midst um, before they continue any battle if they want God to be with them, if they want to be successful. Now, in fact, only one person out of 600,000 men, millions of people, only one person had stolen from the booty. It's a pretty good record. Only one criminal. Large community. Only one person had done bad. And yet God punishes all of the people. What we see from here, God was employing a rule that he had already earlier taught Moses, that all of Israel are responsible for one another. Call Yisrael arivim ze lazet. All of Israel are responsible for each other. If another Jew does something wrong, I as a fellow Jew, it's my problem. Every single one of us are responsible for the actions of every other Jew. You can't say, I'm just going to take care of myself. I'm going to do the right thing. And if other people are doing the wrong thing, it's their problem. No, it's your problem. It's our problem that every single Jew, we made a covenant with God. And our covenant is not just that we, I, will fulfill God's commandments to me. But we made a covenant as a people that each one of us have responsibility that all the people fulfill God's covenants. That's why we find throughout Scripture this concept one person does something wrong and everybody is blamed for the actions of one person. So here one man had sinned, all of Israel is punished. However, God refuses to tell Joshua who that person is. The Talmud says God refuses to tell him because God was teaching Joshua that it is forbidden to say Lashon Hara, to speak bad about another person. Now we are supposed to, someone, we see someone doing wrong, um, and we are supposed to testify against them in court. However, God refused to share with Joshua who had done it. And so God tells Joshua to instead make lots, lottery, to find out who it was. Um, now, lotteries usually, usually are not employed as evidence. However, here they were going to use a lottery in order to divide the land. And so God said that he will um, share the information through a lottery. So first they made a lottery of the 12 tribes of Israel and put and they picked out the tribe of Judah. So then they made a lottery with each of the names of Judah's tribe, and they picked out the Zarchi family. Uh, they made a lot of all the subfamilies of the Zarchi family, and it fell on the Zavdi subfamily. Then they made a lot of all the members of the Zavdi family, and it fell on a man named Achan ben Carmi. So Joshua turned to Achan and asked him, did you steal? And Achan admitted to stealing from Jericho. He had stolen one garment, 200 silver shekels, and a 50-shekel tongue of gold. So they went to Achan's tent, and indeed they found the stolen booty there. God told Joshua to kill Achan, which they did. And this is a very severe punishment for stealing, and usually the punishment for stealing is not death, but this was a one-time instruction where God told um, Joshua to kill Achan. And then after that, they had removed the stolen booty. Then God tells him, now try capturing I again. This time, Joshua doesn't send a party of 3,000 men. He sends a group of 30,000 men around I to the other side of I at night. 
to wait on the other side as an ambush. Joshua then leads the rest of Israel, remember Israel, 600,000 men, very, very large army. So it leads the rest of Israel to attack Ai. As, the, as Joshua comes with his men to attack Ai, the people of Ai come out, and Joshua and his men pretend to flee. And they draw, by running out, away, they draw all of Ai's soldiers to chase them out of Ai. Meanwhile, the ambush, the other group, enters Ai from behind, and they set the city aflame, burn down the city. Um, then Joshua, when the city is burning, Joshua and his men turn around, attack the people of Ai. The people of Ai have nowhere to run to. Their city is burning behind them, and that way they destroy the city of Ai. Having now captured the city of Ai, of Jericho and Ai, Joshua has now opened up the way to Mount Grizim and Mount Aval. Mount Grizim and Mount Aval are two mountains right next to the city of Shechem in central Israel, a little northwest of um, Jericho, and he's now opened up the way to Mount Grizim and Mount Aval. God had commanded Moses that when they come to the promised land, as soon as they can, they should go to Mount Grizim and Mount Aval. And so Joshua goes with the people to Mount Grizim and Mount Aval and follows, follows Moses' instructions. Firstly, as it says in the Torah, they took 12 stones and they set up 12 large stones on Mount Aval where Joshua had the people inscribe the entire Torah on these 12 stones. That would have been quite a job. The Torah is almost 80,000 words. It's a quite, a, quite a job, and they inscribed it on those stones so that they will remain for many generations. They'll always have the Torah. Um, unfortunately, we no longer have those stones. It appeared those stones lasted a couple hundred years, but did not last all that long. Um, then they're told, as God commanded them in the Torah, that six tribes should stand on top of Mount Grizim, six tribes on top of Mount Aval. The Levites should stand in the middle. And then the Levites should turn to Mount Grizim and say, blessed are the people who um, follow the Torah and 11 specific things um, that they follow, that they will be blessed for, all listed by Moses in the Torah. And then turn to Mount Aval and say, cursed are the people that don't follow the Torah and list 11 things that um, transgressions um, against the Torah. And all the people answered, Amen, exactly as God had commanded Moses. So now they are still encamped in Gilgal, just over the Jordan River, where they had already captured and destroyed two towns. At this point, there's a large city in central Israel called Givon. Givon, the inhabitants of Givon and the surrounding towns around Givon know that they are next. They know what happened. Jericho and Ai had been destroyed. They know they had destroyed the cities, that Israel had destroyed the cities east of um, the, that Israel had destroyed the cities east of the, the countries east, east of the Jordan, and so they were afraid, and so they decided to trick Joshua. So they dressed in rags and old clothing um, that looked like they had journeyed from very far, and they took old flasks of, of water and wine and um, old bread, and they dried bread, and they came to um, the Israelite camp, and they said, we have traveled from very, very far away. We heard about how God took your people out of Egypt and the great miracles God performed for you. 
we want to make a treaty with you that we, you will not, we will not harm you, you will not harm us. So they brought the, these people to Joshua. Joshua, without asking God, believed them that they had come from far away, was very impressed. And so Joshua makes a treaty with these people um, who wanted to, um, who wanted to, um, re who recognized the greatness of God and the greatness of our people. Now, in doing so, Joshua had gone against a command in the Torah, with the Torah had said, do not make a treaty with these people, with the people of Canaan. Don't make a treaty, don't allow them to stay. The people of Canaan were given the option um, to either leave um, or to um, accept the Noahide laws, um, accept monotheism, or be killed, and most of the people of Canaan were killed. So, but here they made a treaty with them, although they had been warned not to make a treaty. And so a few days later, um, Israel discovers that they had been lied to, that these were really people from the nearby town of Givon. They were local Canaanites and they had tricked them. Um, they come to Joshua and um, Joshua says, well, since we've made a treaty with these people, we cannot harm them. However, they did require the people to accept monotheism. And the people, not only the Givenites, not only accepted monotheism, but agreed to convert to Judaism, and they all converted en masse to Judaism. However, Joshua was upset that these people had tricked him, and therefore Joshua said that this group, the Givenites, are going to have a role. They will be essentially um, the slaves of the temple, or servants of the temple, where they will be in charge of the upkeep of the temple, drawing water for the temple, chopping wood for the temple, um, and that will be their role because as punishment for having tricked Joshua. Now these, this group, the Givenites, lived as Jews in their town Givon, in the surrounding towns um, in Israel for many, many years afterwards. Um, as a kind of sub-tribe within Israel, um, as Jews, it was only much later in the days of King David that the Gibbonites, um had been harmed by King Saul. And because they had been harmed by King Saul, they asked David to take revenge against King Saul's children and kill, kill King Saul's children in revenge for Saul having harmed them. And David was furious at their request because Jews don't seek revenge. Jews are not cruel. And these people were cruel. They were missing the Jewish trait of kindness and mercy. And because of that, David punished these people, forbade Jews from marrying, although they had converted to Judaism, and they were Jewish living essentially as their own tribe among Jews, David forbade people from marrying into the Givenite families. And from then on, they were forbidden, Jews were forbidden from marrying Givenites. Um, they continued to live during the second temple period. Um, they're sometimes called Netinim, and, uh, but then uh, by the end of the second temple, they disappear. We don't hear about them anymore. We don't know what happened to them. Perhaps they assimilated, perhaps they were killed in the wars. Um, we don't know what ended up happening to these Givenites. Meanwhile, the other kings of Canaan hear how the people of Givon had made peace with Joshua. And five of the strongest kings of southern Canaan, um, the towns of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmut, Lachish, and Eglon all gathered together, not to attack Israel, but to attack the Gibbonites for having made a treaty with Israel, for having defected to the enemy. 
And so um, when the Gibeonites are attacked by these five great kings, they send a message to Joshua to help them. Joshua had made a treaty with them, feels obliged to help them. And so Joshua comes, brings the entire army of Israel, and he attacks these five armies where they had gathered. He attacks them suddenly at night and, um, the, and smites many of them. And as morning comes, the Canaanites, the Canaanite men begin to flee. And Joshua and the arm and his army, the Israel, um, began to chase these Canaanites. Um, the book of Joshua tells that as the people are running, there is a massive hailstorm with massive hailstones that fall not on Israel, only on the Canaanites, miraculously killing many of the Canaanites. As the people flee all day Israel, chasing them, soon the sun is setting, and Joshua then calls on the sun to stop. Stop, do not set. Give us some extra time to kill all the Canaanites who are still fleeing, catch them and kill them before sundown. And miraculously, the sun stops right there and does not set. And Israel continues pursuing the enemy, killing all the Canaanites who were fleeing. And only then did the sun set. Perhaps the greatest miracle ever performed, a miracle already predicted by Jacob in his blessings to Joseph's son Ephraim, that his descendant will be spoken about by all the nations, the entire world saw this great miracle of the sun stopping and not setting. Yes, Bar. You have to unmute yourself. You have a question? Seems harsh to kill everybody. Seems kind That's of hard. Very good question. Why did God command Israel to kill all the Canaanites? It's an excellent question. Um, the Torah gives us a simple answer, which is if you leave the Canaanites, then you will adopt their ways. If you leave them there, idolaters, pagans, you will adopt their ways and live like them. You will not live in God's way in the promised land. The Torah also tells us that the Canaanites were deserving of being destroyed because of their horrible, corrupt ways. So they were deserving of being destroyed. Even so, and what about the children? Even children, so, children also. Yeah, I mean, even so, it appears very, very harsh to kill the Canaanites. Today, um, we no longer consider it acceptable. Although it was common in the ancient world, we no longer consider it acceptable. Firstly, to conquer somebody else's land that they're living in, um, to kill other people, we call, we call it genocide, um, to kill entire nations. Um, we no longer consider that acceptable, although it, of course, was common throughout most of our history. The Torah forbids us from killing innocent people, Jews or non-Jews. However, the same Torah that forbade us from killing innocent people gave us this one-time command to kill the Canaanites and to kill all of them. Um, the Torah also gives us a similar command with regards to Midian. Um, in next week's reading, we'll talk about it next week, and um, also gave us a similar command with regard to the nation of Amalek. Um, there is no question that these commandments, um, with, with all the explanations given in the Torah um, about their corrupt ways, 
and about how God did not want them to corrupt our people, uh, it still does not justify ultimately killing people uh, and still does not fit with the morals and values that the Torah told us. And this is among the handful of instructions God gave us, mostly one-time instructions that do not fit with the morals and values of the Torah. Um, it really, this really is a subject for another class as to how God instructed us for a genocide. Um, but just to very briefly address this question, which I was waiting for someone to raise, I knew it would come up. Um, but just to briefly address this question, uh, ultimately we believe that God is the arbitrator of morals and values. And God ultimately decides right from wrong. And God ultimately is the one that tells us what's right and wrong. Sometimes those values that God tells us are things that we can relate to and understand. And sometimes God instructs us things that go against the values that he has taught us. As God instructed Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Although he stopped him from actually doing so. But God sometimes instructs us to do things that go against the values that he has taught us. And um, ultimately we believe God to be the arbitrator of right and wrong and values. And in this instance, God had told them to do so, and therefore it was the right thing to do, no matter how much it goes against the values that God had told them. So that's a very short answer. I know it doesn't deal adequately resolve the issue, and it really is a subject for another class. Lewis, did you have a question? Um, yeah, Rabbi, uh, I, I thought when uh, the battle for uh, Yericho, Jericho, was going on, that's when the, uh, there was that extra long day. Yeah, it was not by the Battle of Jericho, it was by the Battle with the Five Kings. Okay, thank you. So... Um, so then Joshua, meanwhile, during the battle, hears that five, the five kings actually are, fled and are hiding in a cave. Rather than attack the cave, um, Joshua has the people seal the cave with stones while continuing to chase the Canaanites. Later, he comes back, he captures these five kings, and he kills them. Now, at this point, the book of Joshua goes into great detail how Joshua and his army, um, essentially all 600,000 men of Israel, move from town to town, capturing each and every town. Altogether, they captured 31 fortified cities, each ruled by a king. Um, this was a seven-year process that took them to capture each and every major fortification in Israel. He didn't capture all of the promised land. He captured most of the promised land. However, he did leave pockets of Canaanites um, that he did not get to um, because covering Canaan at the time was densely inhabited. 31 large cities, um, which he did capture, but there were smaller pockets that he did not capture. He also did not capture the Philistines in the southwest of Israel, um, along the southwestern coast, um, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. He did not capture the Philistine lands, and that's because Abraham had made a promise to the uh, earlier Philistine king that he would not, that his descendants would not attack the Philistines. They also failed to capture the Northwest, or the Sidonites living in Tyre and Sidon, uh, modern-day Lebanon. They failed to capture as well. But Joshua, meanwhile, began to, but they did capture a land that spanned from the desert in the south, Beersheba, all the way as far north as the Hermon Mountain. 
um, which is today Israel's most, most nor northern most point. Um, and so then Joshua began the process of dividing the land among the 12 tribes. He gave each tribe an area, delineating the area for each tribe. And then, each, then he began the process of helping each tribe divide the land among their families, and then based on the size of each family, and then subdivide the land among all the different members of the tribe, giving each member who had, each male who had left Egypt a land, which then was passed on to their children um, who were still, who are now alive, their children who had entered the promised land. He also set aside cities of refuge. God had said that there should be three cities of refuge on the east bank of the Jordan, three on the west bank of the Jordan. Moses had already set, separated the three cities of refuge on the west bank of the Jordan. Joshua now separ separates the three bank, uh, cities of refuge on the east bank, the towns of Hebron, Shechem, and Kadesh, were separated, were set as cities of refuge. Yes, Bart. This, this uh, prohibition against making um, a treaty with uh, the, the Canaanites, does that uh, extend to the Palestinians also? Uh, yeah. Are they part yeah. of that group? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess not directly relevant to our class. Um, we, perhaps we could do one day a class on the Palestinians uh, we've done a JLI where we addressed it before. Um, I know it's somewhat political. Um, no, it does not ap apply to the Palestinians whatsoever. They and anyone who claims so is gravely mistaken. Applied only to the Canaanites. The Canaanites no longer exist. We should be concerned about Palestinian lives. We should be concerned about Arab lives. We should not. We do not have a prohibition to make peace with them. Um, however, the subject of what Israel should do in, with their Arab neighbors is a complex subject of its own and um, beyond the scope of our discussion today. So, um, so Joshua then, can, then separates 42 cities as Moses had commanded him, as cities of the Levites, the tribe of Levi did not get a portion of the promised land, but was rather given 42 cities. The book of Joshua lists these 42 towns where the Levites settled and then Joshua has um, the, a temporary temple built at Shiloh, um, which is in Mount Ephraim, the mountains um, in central Israel. And it remains there at Shiloh for 350 years. It is not the permanent temple because they're told that only once they um, subdue all their enemies and the land of Israel is fully secure, should they build a permanent temple, that's not going to happen until the days of King David, and then God chose Jerusalem as the permanent spot. However, meanwhile, Joshua builds a temporary temple um, in the town of Shiloh, which becomes essentially the holy city for the next 350 years. So according to our tradition, Joshua ruled Israel for 28 years. 14 of them were spent conquering and dividing the land. At the end of his life, he called all of Israel together and remind them, reminded them to always keep the Torah, follow Moses' commandment, the commandments of the Torah, and uh, always study the Torah. And um, he, uh, the people all together commit to keeping the Torah. He does not appoint another leader after his death, as Joshua had done. And so essentially after his death begins a new period, known as the period of Judges, where Israel essentially, each tribe was ruled by its own leaders, and it was, and Israel as a nation was ruled, had a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council, um, that dealt with religious issues, um, Torah issues.
However, the civil leadership um, was ruled as a loose federation um, in the promised land with no real standing army, um, led by different shoftim, different judges, the first of which was Atniel ben Kenaz, and that's all discussed in the next book of um, scripture, the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges. So Joshua died in Mount Ephraim where he lived. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. Mount Ephraim is an area in central Israel around the modern day Shechem, a um, little north of Jerusalem. And so he was buried, uh, he, he was buried in Timnat Serach where he lived. His tomb can be found today in the Arabic town of Kapel Charis, which is just north of the Israeli city of Ariel. Ariel is the large Israeli city north of Shechem. And so this is a little bit north of that is this town of, um, sorry, south of Shechem. A little bit north of Ariel is the town of Kipacharis where Joshua's tomb is found today. And you can go there glowing. Joshua, um, Joshua made many rules for Israel, rules such as uh, during the winter week. when the roads are not working, um, the, uh, p uh, the, when the roads are muddy, people can go in the fields, don't have anything in them, people can go onto the field, trespass the fields, or other practical laws for Israel. And so he really set up Israel um, for its living in the promised land. While Moses was the lawgiver, the one that gave us all the rules, Joshua that was the one that actually set us up as a nation in the land of Israel.